0: Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr Helen Garth, the Medical Director of NHS Practitioner Health, which is the NHS service that looks after doctors, dentists and also other NHS staff who are experiencing mental ill health. In the upcoming conversation, we talk about the impact that pressures on the NHS are having on doctors' well-being and how this is affecting GPs in particular, Helen also explains what doctors and other staff can do to prevent burnout, what people can do if they're worried about a colleague who is struggling, and how NHS Practitioner Health supports doctors who seek help from the service. And we discuss how the NHS could change to help ensure better mental health for doctors and other staff. Helen has loads of practical advice and tips on managing your mental health, so I really hope you find something useful in this conversation. Before we get into the interview, just a quick warning that this conversation does include an extensive discussion about suicide, and in particular, the issue of suicide in the medical profession. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Helen Garr, who's a GP from Nottingham and Medical Director of NHS Practitioner Health, the NHS service that looks after doctors and other healthcare professionals experiencing mental health problems. Regular listeners may have heard Helen on the podcast before. She appeared on our very first episode back in May last year. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast again, Helen. You're really welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Last time you are on the podcast, we talked quite generally about mental health issues among doctors and other healthcare staff. And so I want to kind of touch on some of those issues again briefly, but also talk about practical steps, GPs and staff worried about their own health or that of a colleague can take. So the pandemic, obviously, we talked about this last time, has had a huge impact on the mental health of doctors and health professionals. But obviously there were real problems in general practice before that and workload hasn't gone down at all. I mean, if anything, in in general practice is now going up every month. How are things generally in terms of the amount of people you're seeing coming forward to NHS practitioner health now?
1: Yeah, and I think that they're really good observations, Emma, that I think all GPs listening to this will absolutely identify with. Workload feels like it's exponentially increasing day on day. And we all know, those of us who are working in general practice, just how tough things are at the moment. And I think at the height of the pandemic, many of us thought, it couldn't get any harder. And actually what we're seeing now is days getting longer and longer. It's absolutely standard now for GPs to be working at a 12 hour day, taking work home with them, working at weekends. What we're seeing at Practitioner Health absolutely reflects that overwhelming workload and the overwhelming um, situation that most GPs are finding themselves in on a daily basis. So, just to give you some context, we have seen a 167% increase in GPs who are self referring to our service, NHS Practitioner Health last year in 2021 compared to pre-pandemic the year before and that increase has been sustained so week on week we are seeing unprecedented high numbers that has become our norm now
0: are there any sort of common traits between the gps using the services at gps across the board are they the same sort of age as they were before the pandemic are there more partners coming forward anything like that that you've noticed
1: So what we see across the board, and obviously we're open to all doctors and dentists of any grade and any speciality, but we do GPs are overrepresented compared to their numbers in the workforce. So around 50% of our numbers are GPs. We still see the highest numbers of GPs coming through are women in the 30 to 39 age bracket. But what we've also seen is an increase in numbers coming through in the 40 to 49 age bracket. So generally long-standing we've always seen more women than men and, and it averages out around three to one so three women to every man that comes through to the service but we are seeing an increase in the 40 to 49 age group and of course the th- the 30 to 39 which is the highest age group and the 40 to 49 that's that typical group where we call the squeeze middle women who've got caring responsibilities often of children, as well as elderly parents, as well as holding down a job. So lots and lots of pressures on women in that age group, both inside and outside of work.
0: So what are the most common things people are coming forward with? And has that changed at all in recent months, years?
1: Doctors, GPs, particularly presenting with is symptoms of burnout, burnout overwhelm, anxiety, we're seeing increased numbers of GPs presenting with symptoms of clinical depression. But without question, doctors are coming forward daily, feeling overwhelmed, burnt out and anxious. um, And that's particularly driven by the incessant and increased workload.
0: One of the things I did want to talk to you about today specifically um, is suicide. Earlier this summer, we saw that really heartbreaking case of Dr. Gail Milligan, who uh, was a GP in Surrey, and her family said her death was a direct result of the pressures she was facing at work. And I think it really rocked the profession, and everyone who read about it found it deeply upsetting. How big of a problem is suicide in medical professionals, and GPs more specifically?
1: That absolutely did shake the profession, and and our thoughts and condolences go out to Everyone who knew and loved Gail. And I think for people who didn't know Gail, the ripples went wide and far. And of course, we see doctor suicides fairly often, actually. Um, And I, I I say a lot, we don't say to doctors, have you ever known a colleague who's died by suicide? We say, how many have you known? And actually, were we to ask somebody who worked in a different profession, so a postman or somebody who worked in the supermarket, how many of your colleagues have you known that have died by suicide? People would be shocked to be asked that question, whereas for general practitioners or, or doctors in general, we're not shocked to be asked that. And it's actually for most of us, we've known somebody who's died by suicide. So I think that answers your question really in short. This is a problem. It's a huge and really terrifying elephant in the room, I would say by virtue of being a doctor, your risk of suicide goes up. We know that doctors are far more likely to have suicidal thoughts or to die by suicide compared to non-doctors. We know that for female doctors, your risk of dying by suicide is a hugely increased. So studies show between two and five percent more likely To die by suicide, and thankfully it is still a rare phenomenon. But I mean, some studies show in America one doctor a day dies by suicide. It's a worrying trend. In fact, um, practitioner health have come together with the Royal College of GPs and Doctors in Distress, where we're gathering with key stakeholders, families of bereaved doctors, to consider what needs to be done and to bring together a call for action to bring about changes to try and do something about this um, awful situation we find ourselves in. We've recently audited and looked at the the patients and the doctors coming through to us at Practitioner Health and actually over 30% of all doctors who have self-referred to Practitioner Health have reported having suicidal thoughts in the last two weeks prior to presenting to practitioner health. And that's over the last 12 months. And of that 30%, another 28% of that 30% have made plans to end their life in the preceding week. They're terrifying figures, terrifying figures. And of course, that's the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing doctors come to practitioner health who actually have recognised that they need to seek help. That's not not even considering the rest of the GP population out there who are working under such duress and stress.
0: Do you talk there about the fact that doctors are recognised as being at high risk of suicide? Why is that? Is it just because of the workload and the nature of the work they do? Or is there anything else in and around medicine that makes that happen?
1: That's a key a key recognised risk factor is the nature of the workload and the level of the workload. And in fact, the studies have shown it's the perception of the intensity of the workload. And of course, we know when we're feeling overwhelmed and burnt out, sometimes things that we would manage quite easily or things that feel really manageable when we're feeling at our best can feel overwhelming. And that perception of the intensity of the workload is what is key in suicide um, as a risk factor for suicide. The work itself for definite, is a key risk factor. And of course, that work demands that we give everything of ourselves, that we care for others. And often there's nothing left in the tank to care for ourselves because we are putting our patients first before all else. But of course, there's also the characteristics of the things that bring us into medicine in the first place, our personality characteristics. So by definition, medicine's a self-selecting group of perfectionists, high achievers, and they're the things that make us great doctors. But they're also the things that can be our downfall. If you're a perfectionist, you will keep going and going and going. And we know that that's what doctors do. Doctors don't call in sick. The pandemic has changed that a little, actually, attitudes to calling in sick. But we recognise that the culture in medicine is we don't call in sick. It has felt shameful or taboo to be unwell. And there's a particular stigma and shame in medicine around being mentally unwell and seeking help. That's one of the aims of practitioner health. We hope to challenge that stigma and make it the norm to be able to seek help and support when things are difficult at work. But actually what I haven't mentioned and what's really important to talk about is um, complaints and regulatory involvement. Um, We certainly recognise at practitioner health that if a doctor has a complaint, That's hugely devastating and actually is a recognised risk factor for suicide. We're massively experienced in supporting doctors who are going through complaints when their mental health affects on that doctor of that complaint. So complaints are getting more and more common. They can absolutely throw us when we get one. They can feel very, very personal. And we know that it can significantly affect a doctor's well-being and mental health when that happens. So that is something that we really, really do need to be aware of. If you get a complaint, please do think about seeking some support if it's affecting your well-being.
0: If a doctor does take their own life, obviously there's, there's a real ripple effect for the people around them as well. And people must people must feel desperate that they, they could have done more or they should have done more. If people listening to this and they're worried about their colleague or someone they care about... Are there any signs that you could be aware of that someone could be reaching that point?
1: I, I'd say if, if anyone is identifying with that, and think I could have done more, I should have done more. And we commonly see that in those who've been bereaved by somebody who's died by suicide. I'd firstly say doctors are very, very good at hiding how they feel. So if somebody's feeling guilty about that, this is not your fault. I want to say that first of all. So doctors are very good at hiding. Doctors will go in, they'll finish their shift even if they're making plans to end their life, they will still go in and do their shift. So it's not always obvious. Doctors know the right things to say. Going back to what you asked earlier, doctors have access to means to end their life that people often don't have. But there are, there are signs that we can all be vigilant for. And, and these there's a crossover in these signs when we're looking at signs of burnout as well. But what we'll often see is a change in personality. People often might become withdrawn. Not their usual self. They might be um, irritable or snappy, locking themselves away in their rooms, spending longer and longer at work or not being interested at work, not sleeping, not eating. Those kind of signs, it can be very difficult to recognise. What I would say is what we want to try and move towards is a culture and medicine of reaching in. We talk about encouraging people to reach out, to get help. That can be very, very difficult and for many reasons as a doctor, one of which we've touched upon, that feeling of shame or stigma about acknowledging that you might need some support. But we know that for doctors, if a colleague checks in on them who says, actually, I've noticed you're not yourself. Have you thought about just getting some help? I've heard about practitioner health, for example. I've used practitioner health. They were brilliant give them a call. We know that doctors are far more likely to seek support if they get a little nudge from a colleague. And building on that, checking in on our colleagues is really, really important. And Professor Neil Greenberg, he's done some wonderful work around this. And he he talks about soldiers in Afghanistan and Soldiers in Afghanistan who had a line manager who they believed cared about them and checked in on them and asked how they were doing had one tenth of the poor mental health scores of soldiers who felt their manager didn't care about them. So we can have a really, really big effect and literally checking in on each other, asking how people are doing. Um, How are you doing? You'll get I'm fine. Actually how are you feeling? I've noticed X, Y, and Z. I've noticed you're not yourself. How how are you feeling? It can be hugely powerful.
0: So that's the kind of advice you'd give people if anyone was worried about a colleague. That's the best thing to do is to try to talk to them.
1: I think if you're worried about a colleague, um, checking in on them is hugely helpful signposting them to know where to get help. We're doctors. We often think we should know what to do, but when you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling low, if you're having suicidal thoughts, it can be hugely difficult to take the advice we would give to our patients. So reminding people of the services that are out there to support. So practitioner health, the BMA counselling service, Samaritans, Calm, seeing your own GP, your employee assistance programmes. There's huge amounts of resources out there And they're all available on the practitioner health website if anybody wants a reminder of of things. But checking in, giving people a nudge. But even more importantly, let's try and build cultures of support and compassion so that our colleagues feel able to talk about how we're feeling and we don't reach that point
0: it was world suicide prevention day on the 10th of september to mark that the bma urged practices to set aside time to consider mental health and ways to support staff in light of rising pressures in practices is there anything practices can do as workplaces to support staff and each other what what can if there's somebody listening to this a gp partner or a practice manager what kind of steps can they take in their workplace to make their environment more supportive
1: yeah. And of course there's huge amounts we, we could um suggest at both organizational and system level. And actually if it was that easy, we would all be doing it. So what people want to know, people want to know is actually what's manageable, what can I do that can make a difference that's within my control. I would say the number one thing you can do within your practices is to strengthen those team bonds and strengthen communication within your teams. It can be very easy as a GP, no matter how wonderful your colleagues are, to go to work, shut your door, see your 40 odd patients plus a day and go home without having spoken to any of your colleagues. And I certainly know back when I was working full time as a GP, sometimes I could go days in an incredibly busy practice without seeing any of my colleagues so prioritizing time to speak to each other to get to know each other um you don't need to be doing whole day day away team building activities but that 10 minute coffee together meeting together for a five minute walk knocking on your colleague's door sticking your head around the door how are you doing i haven't seen you for ages how's your kids what did you have for your tea last night being interested and curious in each other, sending your colleague a screenshot. You're on call today, looks busy. How are you doing? Can I get you a coffee? Can I give you a hand? Just compassion, caring about each other, being interested in each other. And of course, when we build those team bonds and we strengthen those relationships, we get to know about each other. So we get to know when Emma's cat's poorly or Stephen's mum's going in for an operation or somebody's child's struggling with their GCSEs or, or whatever. And it's these secondary stressors that are the things that can often tip us over the edge. We can just about cope with work. But when we've got these other things going on in life, that can make things really difficult. And if our colleagues know about that, and of course, we are, lots of people don't want to share their private lives, but when we build that level of trust and that psychological safety within our teams, people do share those things, And then it makes it much easier to be able to support each other.
0: No that makes total sense. I think that's that's true of any working environment, I'd say, but um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean obviously we've talked there about suicide and that's obviously the very extreme end of mental illness. But as you said, most people who do come to NHS practitioner health, the vast majority of PPC are suffering from burnout and anxiety. In terms of burnout, what are the kind of early warning signs that people should be aware of that they're suffering from burnout? And then what should they do? Because this might be something that an individual notices in themselves as well as a colleague noticing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think there's two, two strands to this. The first is recognising it in yourself. And we know actually we're often not very good at recognising how we're doing in ourselves. Um, and as I mentioned before, doctors just work, 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 work until they crash. So getting into the habit of checking in with yourself. How am I doing today? So am I red? Am I amber? Am I green? Or on a scale of one to 10, where am I sitting on a scale of one to 10? 10, 10 being the best, one being the worst. So just acknowledging and labelling where you're sitting can be really, really helpful. And then as I say, checking in on each other. What can we do about that? Once we check in, we can start to be more familiar with the signs. And we often don't recognise the signs of burnout. And there's lots and lots of things being written about burnout, stages of burnout. Um, But the key signs of burnout are exhaustion. So feeling absolutely exhausted no matter how much sleep you get. Not being able to switch off. So those, those colleagues who are getting in early in the morning, working later at night, not coming out of their room taking longer and longer to make decisions. So that brain fog where things are the opposite to flow. So we talk about flow, the the elite, um, the sports psychologists talk about flow. When we're in that state where we are on it, we're nailing it, we're confident, everything's going. You probably recognize that there'll be days when you're in that state of flow. Burnout's the opposite to that, feeling like you're wading through treacle. And then the key, key sign that I'd say probably the most diagnostic sign of burnout is lack of compassion. When we start to get irritated with our patients, when we start to get irritated with our colleagues, start to get irritated with our family, we're irritating ourselves. But that compassion fatigue, and we all will have experienced that. And I've certainly had it. I, I remember a receptionist knocking at my door in the middle of a duty day saying there's another home visit and just the rage I felt that somebody had dared to be unwell and needed me to visit them, just wanted another piece of me. Instead of absolute compassion that somebody was really worried at home, I was angry. So we call that in burnout stages depersonalization. I think the other key feature, um, and certainly I identify with this when I know it's time to take a break, is feeling of inequalities, so looking at what other people are doing and feeling like you're working far harder than them and feeling resentful at other people's workload compared to yours that's another a key sign of burnout there's actually a really good burnout questionnaire on the bma website that people can fill in to if they want to do a little questionnaire I and mean, there's there's lots of burnout inventories and w- one of the big things they look at on burnout inventories is actually how long does it take you to recover after you've been at work and Actually, if you finish your week at work and you then need to spend the whole weekend on the sofa, totally exhausted and can't move, it's taking you longer and longer to recover, that's another sign you might be burning out and it's time to think about making some changes.
0: Yeah, I wanted to, to come on about, you know, how can you pre- prevent burnout? But, but if someone does reach that point where they are burnout, what do they need to do? Do they need to just take time off work or is, is there other things they need to do as well?
1: So there's lots of support if you find yourself in that situation. And we know that, as I keep saying, doctors just keep battling on through this. If you are feeling burnt out, then you're far more likely to make a mistake. You're far more likely to make get a complaint and then that just perpetuates that cycle. So if you're at the point where actually you're completely exhausted, overwhelmed, you're dreading going to work, doctors tell us, I drive to work and actually I don't want to end my life, but I wish I could just have an accident, break my leg, be off work for a month. You know, something that would just put me in hospital and take me away. We hear that commonly. If you're having those kind of thoughts, it's time to seek help. And obviously practitioner health, that's exactly what we specialize in. We're experts in supporting people who are going through this and often time out of the workplace can be really really valuable for a short time out of the workplace to refill your tank recover from burnout and at practitioner health we will objectively make that decision for you we will give you a a specialist assessment and support you to make the decision about what needs to happen to treat this burnout Now, not everybody needs to be off work so many people think actually you know I I recognize a lot of those symptoms I'm feeling a bit irritable and I'm taking longer to make decisions you know I'm really just a bit fed up and I'm exhausted and I do nothing but work and sleep but actually I'm not really I don't really think I'm at that point yet where I need to be off work well there's lots of things still lots of things we can do when you get there um And I'd say one really, really brilliant resource for people is the Looking After You 2 coaching service. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of that, Emma. It's a fabulous offer from NHS England and it offers executive coaches to all people in primary care. I've used it. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. I'd suggest everyone takes up that offer before it goes. It's not just for people who are feeling burnt out. It's for anyone who's experiencing a challenge or wants to improve their professional and personal lives and careers in primary care. So I think that's one really easy way that people can make a change if they're they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and burnt out.
0: Yeah, we've actually we've actually written about that looking after you, oh, you um to program. Yeah, we've got a couple of articles actually. I'll put a link to them in the in Excellent. the notes for this because yeah, we've done a couple of articles with some case studies about how they actually helped um GPs during the pandemic. I mean, that was when it was set up originally, wasn't it? But they've obviously decided to keep it going because it's been quite a successful initiative.
1: It's it's fantastic offer um, that I'd highly recommend everybody has a look at. And they've expanded that offer. So there's career coaching as well. There's coaching for leaders. There's all sorts of things on there. So that's a really easy, free change that people could make to try and identify and identify solutions and changes if they're feeling a bit overwhelmed.
0: We're talking there about what happens if you do become burnt out. So Is there things that you can do in your day-to-day working life to help prevent you getting to the point where you are burnt out?
1: Yeah, and there's tons of stuff being written about this, isn't there? But it can be hard to put them into practice. I think the first thing I'd like to say is if we were all working an eight-hour day with a one-hour lunch break with CPD time and supervision and a manageable patient workload and resources to do the jobs we want to do, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So often we can talk about little things you can do, easy wins, which I will come on to, but I want to make it clear that's not the whole answer. The, the answer to burnout does need to come at system and organizational levels. And so I don't want this people to feel personally responsible. However, saying that there are little easy wins we can do to bring some joy back into our day, to make our day more manageable to try and prevent burnout and to stay well. So I often say to people, um, I talk about this one to 10 scale that I've mentioned earlier. Um, and I say, imagine you have a staircase. Bottom of the staircase is number one, top of the staircase is number 10. So top of the staircase is where you want to be with your well-being and your work-life balance and how happy you're feeling. Think about where you're sitting on that staircase at the moment. It might be a two, it might be a five, And then think about actually, what could I do? What small change could I make that could move me up one stair? So not all the way to 10. So it might be, you might be sitting at a five and you think, actually, I know that if I just took my trainers to work and went for a 10 minute walk in the middle of the day, that would move me up one step. That would make my day a little bit more bearable. And then think about a time where you were higher up the ladder, when you were a higher number than you are now was different what were you doing then and is there anything that you know if you were to do it would make things better and there's a really good website it's wellbeinganddoing.net it was partially funded by NHS England and written by doctors all around this about what can I do if I've got 30 seconds three minutes I think it's an hour what can I do that will help make me well and So essentially, if we look at little easy wins and focus on the basics, they're the things that prevent burnout. When I say basics, I'm talking about taking breaks, eating nutritious food, sleeping, things that fill your tank. So I I often say to patients, right, I want you to write down 10 things that nourish you, that nourish your soul. 10 things that fill your tank 10 things that recharge your battery, however you want to look at it and make those things small and manageable. So it might be things as simple as I am going to make a nutritious lunch and take it to work rather than, um, you know, eating chocolates out of reception for my lunch break. It might be having a bath, it might be going for a dog walk, it might be looking up at the clouds, it might be lighting a candle, it might be reading a book, it might be watching a film, whatever it is for you. So what nourishes you and what recharges your battery? And if you make a list, you can see what they are and then try and integrate them into your day. So for me, one of mine was, um, I know that if I listen to music, I feel better. So I started doing my admin, my doc man to music, my favorite music that lifted and, and inspired me. I started making sure that I committed to switching off when I left work in the evening. And there's lots of w- ways you can do that. And then making sure I take a break, which is sometimes seemingly impossible in general practice, um, we often just lurch from one holiday to the next. So if I can just keep going, then I've got my annual leave. And then we get to our annual leave and we're exhausted. Then we come back from that we spend our annual leave worrying about work. We come back from an annual leave and we have to catch up with all the work we did before. And there's lots of evidence that actually long holidays aren't necessarily the answer to burnout because within a couple of days we're back to the level we were at before. The answer, actually, the evidence shows taking frequent short breaks are much more effective. So whether those frequent short breaks, if we just commit to 10 minutes away from our screens at work to go outside and go for a walk or go and talk to a colleague, those basics, those easy wins, those things that are manageable... Other things that can keep us well? And I'm, I'm going to stop talking in a second. But the last thing I'm going to say is if you're listening to me talking about these easy wins, these basics, and it's giving you the rage and making you think, actually, this is just one more thing for me to do. I can't go for a walk. That's probably a sign you're at number one on that ladder. And you need to be coming to practitioner health for, and let us help you and let us support you.
0: I mean, that's really good advice. I I might write down a little list as well. I think that's really good advice. You talk there about the system needs to change as well. And just before I come on to ask a bit about how practitioner health works, it seems to me that the NHS, from everything I have to write about and read about and see, it's in a really perilous position at the minute. And I think that my impression is that lots of doctors. And nurses and all healthcare staff feel that they're working in a system that isn't functioning properly and that they're doing a bad job because they don't have the resources to do the job they want to do. And that must be so demoralising. It must be a massive contributing factor to doctors and other staff becoming ill. It feels like none of it's working for patients. It's not if, if doctors are all ill, they're not doing the best for patients and it becomes this vicious circle. Do you have any thoughts about what needs to change? And I mean, it's a really big question, but I just wondered if there's anything that you would like to see the new health secretary focus on sort of immediately to address some of these challenges.
1: And of course, that's huge, isn't it? And like I said earlier, if there was an easy answer to this, we would be doing it already. And, you know, without going into a lot of detail, because we could talk all day about this, clearly funding is our number one. But if there was this two key things i think that could make a real difference um to how staff feel and obviously it's much more nuanced and complex than um than what i'm about to say but first is cap on workload the workload is unsustainable every single doctor or primary care worker is doing the work of more far more than one person people do not have manageable workloads and that leads to moral injury, that leads to people not being able to be the doctors they really want to be, not being able to give the care they want to give, not having the time to spend with patients and when patients are frustrated and angry we get into this vicious circle of doctors are then unvalued and they feel unvalued and they feel disrespected and um, that is a massive contributor to burnout. So Having some kind of cap on workload so workload can be manageable would make a big difference. The second thing I'd do if I had a magic wand that I would bring in that would make a big difference is protected time and availability of supervision for all doctors in primary care. The level of distress and um, the compassion we give on a daily basis, absolutely has to take its toll. It can't not. We are giving our all 100 times a day. And we hold so much in this confidential space. Giving protected time for supervision, giving doctors a safe space to talk, to reflect, I think actually needs to just be mandatory. And if we were able to introduce that into the workforce, and of course, if you're a psychiatrist, that's part of your job plan. It's accepted and in the therapy space, it's accepted that you will have supervision. So I think if I had a magic wand, that's one thing I would be doing different that could make a tangible difference to people's well-being and preventing burnout.
0: If someone does feel they need help, and as you say, like you've got quite a lot of people coming forward to NHS practitioner health. you know, Some people might be quite scared about what's going to happen if they, they, they say, oh, I need some help. So what actually does happen if someone self-refers themselves to your service? What happens from that point onwards?
1: So let me start by saying the cornerstone of practitioner health is confidentiality we absolutely put that above everything else. And we recognize that one of the big barriers to doctors seeking help through normal NHS services is concerns about confidentiality. Often we might have sat in a, um, a PCM meeting with our own GP. We might have seen them at a party recently. We might have trained with them. Medicine's a small world, So if a doctor presents to us and we are a self-referral only service you can be absolutely guaranteed about confidentiality so I just want to start by saying that so we're a self-referral service you can refer yourself to us by a number of routes most people go on the website and click the button that says refer here and fill in the form on the website takes about I think it takes about 10-15 minutes to fill in the form and the form does ask about your well-being, what's going on, which can really, really help us. Then after you've filled in that form, you can expect to receive a invitation to book a detailed assessment. Or you might receive an offer of a phone call from one of our highly trained clinicians to talk through about what's going on. We have a app that's special to practitioner health that allows every doctor gets access to the app that allows them to see all of our clinicians, to book appointments in a confidential space. After you have your first assessment, you will um, be offered treatment if that's appropriate. And that treatment can take many forms. It will be always made in conjunction with you about what you like what you'd like to see what you've tried before what your ideas are what your hopes are but that treatment can take the form of talking therapy and we have a whole network of therapists who offer various different forms of therapy so most commonly cbt or brief intervention psychotherapy we do have a trauma pathway It may be that you have specialist case management with one of our expert expert clinicians. It may be that you choose to have group therapy and we have a whole number of different groups. So we're constantly looking at the issues that are affecting healthcare staff and developing in according to that need. So we are about to start groups for international medical graduates, groups for bullying. We have groups for doctors who suffer with addiction. We have groups for doctors who have children with complex medical needs. We have groups for doctors who are experiencing mental health of Long COVID, doctors who are experiencing the emotional challenges of working in the NHS. We have a Doctor CBT Toolkit group. We have lots and lots of different groups. Um, we also are an addiction service. So we're a mental health and addiction treatment service. And um, we have um, lots of our highly trained addiction specialists working with us and we have three inpatient addiction facilities in England and Scotland. So in essence when a doctor self-refers to us they can be reassured of confidentiality. They will be offered an assessment and a treatment plan that can take various forms and of course we can prescribe, we can write sick notes, all the things your usual GP would do and our inpatient rehab offer. But most importantly What we offer, we offer a safe space to listen, to hear your story. We offer love, we offer support, and we get it. We absolutely get it. We understand all of the challenges. We understand the difficulties that working in the NHS presents, and we really, really do get it. So I would say if you are hesitant at all about, self-referring to us please please give it a go there's no lower threshold for coming into us we won't turn anybody away for not being unwell enough we see a whole spectrum right through from trainees who might be feeling um overwhelmed with exams through to addiction through to um people feeling really very unwell so if you are having any doubts at all if you've considered us please do self refer. If you recognise some of the things I've talked about in this podcast, in your colleagues, please give them a nudge. Tell them about practitioner health. We want to see you. We are here to help. We're here to listen. And most importantly, we're here to get you better. And all of the doctors that come to our service pretty much get better.
0: It's a great service. I mean, I know it's been going for a very long time in one guise or another, and, and we've been writing about it on GP for, for many years. Um, and I think it really is great. And it's really great that the NHS decided to pick it up and make it a free service for all doctors and dentists. Yeah, and
1: needed now more than ever.
0: You do do some work as well, don't you, with other healthcare staff, but they have to refer themselves through a different way, don't they? They, they go through the local health and wellbeing hubs. Is that right?
1: We do. So I, I focused on doctors here, um, given that um, your audience is GPs, but actually, so just to summarise our, our offer, we're open to um, all regulated staff in Scotland. So that covers way more than doctors. So if you are with a regulatory body in Scotland please self-refer to us. In England, doctors and dentists and senior leaders, grade 18 and above, are very welcome to self-refer. Anybody else working for the NHS in England outside of those um, roles can come to us via the health and wellbeing hubs. So NHS England have funded 40 health and wellbeing hubs across the country who are there to support all NHS staff. And if NHS staff outside of our parameters presented to the health and well-being hubs, and it's felt that they would benefit from our support to NHS practitioner health. Then the health and well-being hubs are able to refer in. So we do see in England other NHS staff coming through to us via that route.
0: Thank you so much to Helen for taking the time to talk with me this week. She really was a brilliant guest. If you've been affected by any of the issues that we talked about today, there are links to a range of resources and information that can help, including the NHS Practitioner Health website in the notes for this episode. Before we finish this week, just a quick reminder of an upcoming one-day event by our sister website, MIMS Learning. MIMS Learning Live takes place on Thursday, the 10th of November in Liverpool. It features two clinical learning streams and topics that will be covered include chronic kidney disease, type 2 diabetes, mental health and women's health all of which will be presented by expert speakers. The event is free for GPs and other healthcare professionals. So for more information and to register your place, visit mimslearninglive.com. Well, that's it for this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about giving us a rating and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back next week with our news editor, Nick Bostock, for our regular news review. Do join me then. In the meantime, you can find the latest news affecting general practice and access a wealth of other resources on our website, gponline.com.